Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for being here. My name is Charles Plosser, and along with Anna Schwartz, co-chair of the Shadow Open Market Committee, we want to thank all of you for coming today and uh, coming to listen to our presentations to our uh, semi-annual uh, meeting here uh, on, on monetary policy. Um, uh, yesterday, we met, we met all afternoon talked a lot of, uh, about aspects of monetary policy. It's certainly true that today... Uh, or tomorrow and Wednesday, the FOMC is going to be meeting, as all of you know. And we, like everybody else, fully anticipate that the Fed will uh, hike the federal funds rate another 25 basis points this week. Uh, that's pretty well uh, expected by the markets at this point, and we, we, uh, we certainly agree with that at this point as well. Um, but we talked about a no number of things. In particular, we talked about what the prospects and outlooks for inflation might be, uh, a little bit about how the Fed is, has been responding to that, uh, and, and also about the dilemma that the Fed's been facing recently and the challenges in, in this environment, particularly about the uncertainty over an inflation. Um, uh, the Fed continues to have some problems with its communications, about how it communicates with the markets. We talked considerably about that. And some more generally about... Uh, uh, different ways that the Fed could evaluate the current stance of monetary policy and perhaps look into the future, how they might do so in the future. Uh, we also discussed aspects of, the, uh, of Fed responsibilities that lie outside the realm of monetary policy. Uh, and Anna Schwartz is going to talk to us a little bit about uh, some of those activities and whether now uh, with the, having a new chairman is a good time to re review or reassess some of their role in sort of non-monetary policy activities. So we talked about a number of dimensions of monetary policy in this environment, and we're going to share with you some of our thoughts today about what those, what those um, uh, conclusions were and what we think the future might hold. So the first person on our agenda uh, is going to talk about inflation. That's going to be Greg Hess. So, Greg. Thank you, Charles. Uh, let me be perfectly clear. Uh, there is currently some heightened uncertainty about the direction of short-term interest rates. There shouldn't be. The Federal Open Market Committee is currently planning to raise short-term interest rates. They will likely do so several more times. The FOMC is currently on a tightening path for monetary policy as measured by short-term nominal interest rates. They will continue to stay on it. The press is currently filled with reports on every formal and informal utterance that emanates from Chairman Bernanke's lips. A similar situation developed with Chairman Greenspan. Communication need not be so difficult. The Fed should adopt the periodic issuance of an inflation report. The, UF, the FOMC should also have regularly scheduled press conferences after every regular FOMC meeting. At such a press conference, they should detail their policy actions, their policy strategies, and their economic outlook for the U.S. economy. The FOMC is an unelected body. You should ask them why they deserve secrecy. But underlying all of the uncertainty of where the federal funds rate is headed are the principles of good monetary policy. The first principle is the commitment to a long run is a commitment to long run price stability. The second principle is that policy should be forward looking and data dependent. The third is that monetary policy should be rule based. What a rule does is it tethers the long run price objective to a contingent action plan in a forward looking data dependent way. The Taylor rule is such a rule, as is the McCallum rule. The fourth principle is that inflation does not die of natural causes. To die, it must be killed, humanely so, but killed nevertheless. So while good macroeconomists can argue endlessly about whether the FOMC should counteract and try and stabilize real output movements with monetary policy, all good monetary economists understand that only monetary policy can be used to stabilize the long-run price level. Such a policy was used, and for a considerable period, during the FOMC's recent deflation scare. To combat the entrenchment of movements in inflation and movements in inflation expectations, a forward-looking, 
rule-based monetary policy must be used to aggressively stay ahead of all inflation movements, both deflation and inflation. Now, numerous commentators are hoping that the FOMC will slow its tightening course and that the FOMC will use a wait-and-see approach to see how inflation develops over the next three to six months. In other words, why combat inflation if it's not really there? Why not pause? Maybe it will just go away on its own. As history has shown, however, waiting for inflation to go away on its own is a lot like hoping cancer will go away on its own. Inflation is not like having a cold. It is more like having cancer. A cold goes away on its own. Cancer doesn't. And just like no doctor advocates that an otherwise healthy patient should not counteract the future consequences of cancer, a central bank should take a rise in inflation with similar vigilance. It did so when it anticipated that deflation was taking hold. It should do so now when there are concerns that inflation is taking hold. So let me return to being clear. Core inflation is at the top end of the FOMC's presumed target. Broader measures are well above this level by at least one or two percentage points. Inflation expectations are above 2%. Some inflation expectations, like the Michigan survey, are well above 3%. Nominal income growth is high, averaging year over year 7%. The cost to the FOMC for maintaining their price stability credibility are now relatively low. The credibility cost to the FOMC if inflation were to rise further would be very large. The FOMC is taking prudent action against a permanent rise in the rate of inflation by undertaking a tightening course of monetary policy. This policy is prudent because it is forward-looking, is supported by data, and is consistent with the modern approach to implementing good monetary policy. Such a policy was used recently to head off inflation. The FOMC's current monetary policy stance of tightening is not, current, is not finished. Economies don't just cure themselves of inflation. Next, we'll have Mickey Levy talk a little bit about the economy and a, a little bit about the prospects for uh, it, its evolution. Mickey. Thank you, Charlie. Um, as Greg mentioned, year-over-year uh, year core inflation at 2 percent is at the top end of the acceptable range determined by uh, the Federal Reserve, and it's at the top end of the Fed's central tendency forecast, while headline inflation has remained persistently above uh, 3%. Now, as for the economy, um, it's very healthy with significant momentum, and while the Federal Reserve has stated that the economy is strong, but that it expects it will slow, to date, through the data we received in April, there's no signs that the economy is slowing either on the demand side or the production side. A little bit of detail. As you know, uh, first quarter GDP uh, bounced back sharply from the weak uh, fourth quarter. It grew 4.8% in real terms and I believe over 8% in nominal terms. Um, consumption was strong. Um, Investment was very strong. Exports were strong. Uh, businesses, by building inventories, uh, uh, suggest that businesses have a lot of confidence. The data so far for April are, once again, on the demand side of the economy. We've seen a clear flattening out in housing activity. That shouldn't come as a surprise um, in light of the Fed's rate hikes to date and the flattening yield curve. However, beyond that, uh, we see no signs of moderation. Auto sales uh, uh, ticked up a little bit in April. We don't have the data yet, but non-auto sales look to be strong. In fact, show a stronger increase, even controlling for higher uh, gas prices than in March. And it looks like consumption growth in the uh, second quarter is looking uh, to be well above 3% 
and I forecast real GDP um, in the second quarter to be about three and three quarters percent um, above uh, what what uh, the, the the Fed considers to be uh, a trend line uh, growth. Um, on the production side of the economy, re- responding to the demand. Um, you see increases in industrial production. Even last Friday's employment report, which showed weak increases in uh, net jobs gained, aggregate hours worked increased five-tenths of a percent, which is consistent with another healthy increase in industrial production, uh, as reflected also by the, the ISM surveys. Um, the durable goods reports of late um, point toward sustained rapid growth in industrial production. Now, um, Greg mentioned nominal GDP. Keep in mind the Federal Reserve does not control the real economy. The Federal Reserve, through its actions, generates a certain amount of nominal spending growth, a portion of which is real, the residual is inflation. If you look at nominal GDP over the last two years, its average annualized pace of growth is 6.7%. About 3.9% of that is real, with very healthy productivity gains, while the residual, um, and, and the, because the, the government uses um, uh, chain-weighted figures, they don't add up, but, but inflation's been on the headline, a touch on the deflator, a touch shy of 3%. Um, Inflation is going to approach the extent to which nominal spending growth exceeds the nation's long-run capacity to grow. And 6.7% is way too fast. Um, And so the Fed has told us, even though it does not have an inflation target, that it wants to keep core inflation down to 2%. The Fed's dilemma, and it has, has several dimensions to it, One dilemma is, historically, the Fed has relied on slack models to forecast inflation, Uh, the GDP gap and the Nehru models. Both of those models have proved unreliable in the past, have analytical flaws and the like, um, and they don't work um, in part because we don't know how to measure uh, uh, productivity and potential growth, but also... um, they assume you can they assume that a real variable real growth or a low unemployment rate is a measure of slack whereas the best way to measure slack is comparing nominal spending growth relative to productive capacity and the fed is starting to question whether these models work a second dilemma is there's no single measure of monetary thrust that that is totally reliable Um, And thirdly, monetary policy affects the economy with a lag. Now, if you look at various measures of monetary thrusts, the monetary aggregates have been growing moderately, consistent with a slowdown in nominal spending from 6.7%. And by the end of this week, the federal funds rate will be 5%, up from 1%. The issue is the following, as we look at inflation. As I mentioned, nominal spending growth at 6.7% year-over-year is too fast. If energy prices stabilize, will nominal spending grow slow to the Fed's central tendency forecast of about 5.5%, which over the long run would yield 3.5% real growth and 2% inflation? Or will nominal spending growth continue to be rapid which would facilitate price pass-throughs and higher inflation. Um, That's the major dilemma facing the Fed. Um, Greg mentioned that select indicators of inflationary expectations have recently risen, and some financial market participants are starting to question the Fed's inflation-fighting credibility. And the Fed itself, um, when asked... Uh, why um, core inflation has remained so modest despite the rapid growth in nominal spending and despite the higher energy prices, they would identify their inflation-fighting credibility as a key uh, factor that has influenced pricing and wage behavior. 
Therefore, it's incumbent on the Federal Reserve to maintain its inflation-fighting credibility and keep inflationary expectations anchored. And uh, that's why uh, we encourage um, the Federal Reserve to um, um, probably be forced to increase rates a little more beyond this meeting tomorrow. And I'll stop right there. Thank you, Mickey. Um, the, the Shadow Open Market Committee has often, uh, over the last several years, been trying to evaluate monetary policy and think about monetary policy in terms of various forms of rules. Uh, we've advocated the Fed adopt an inflation targeting framework. Uh, Chairman Bernanke has often advocated that himself over the years. Uh, we support that. We support that push, and but we also further supported the notion that that rulemaking behavior on the part of the Fed or more predictable behavior, not so much in the actual decisions, but rules in the way in which they actually choose a decision, a decision rule, if you will, as opposed to a decision outcome, uh, is a better way to conduct monetary policy. Uh, uh, ben McCallum has, has studied this a great deal and is going to talk to us a little bit about that and sort of the consequences and aspects of talking about different forms of rules. So, Ben? So my, my position paper that's in your folders is has that title, Policy Rule Retrospective on the Greenspan Years. Is my microphone okay? I need to speak louder. Okay. Um, is that all right? Yes. So, in, as Charles said, in our work, we use two different quantitative guidelines for thinking about monetary policy, the Taylor Rule and one that I've promoted for a long time. We look at both of them. Now, it's widely believes, believed that, that interest rate rules are the only way uh, to do useful analysis of this time. I'm about the only academic that's looking at, uh, at monetary base growth rules this, these days. But this, this little respective, retrospective study that I've done tells a, a different story. Now, I think most of us would agree that policy was quite skillfully conducted during the Greenspan years. And so one thing that we would think is that a good rule should uh, uh, match the actual behavior of the policy process over, over those periods. But in fact, the prescriptions of the Taylor Rule differed tremendously from actual settings over a, a four-year interval, including 2002 through 2005. Um, and there is actually no major sustained discrepancy between actual practice and the settings of the base money rule during the entire Greenspan year. So th th that's what I'm going to show you now. This is the plot for the Taylor rule. The blue line is what that guideline says the federal funds rate should have been. And the red line is what the federal funds rate uh, actually was over that 18-year span. Now, this is really a huge, long-lasting discrepancy right here. Uh, that's two percentage points per annum, 200 basis points, the difference between those two marks there. So it's greater than that for that whole period there. That's a huge discrepancy, one that says that policy should have been a lot tighter than it was all of that time. Okay, this is the plot for the base rule that I like to work with. 
Now, it looks like a sort of a choppy mess, but the main reason for that is that the Fed's operating procedures uh, pay no attention to monetary-based growth, and so they just let the they not only let, they encourage the values to just jump around wildly from period to period. So the, so the actual growth rates are going to be uh, very, very large, just as on the basis of the way the Fed operates. But one can still look at them and get some idea about uh, what the stance is being because just sort of smooth them out, think of them as being smoothed out. And so I would want to look at that chart to see if there's any long sustained discrepancy between the suggested levels and the actual levels. And there's nothing that even comes close to matching that four-year uh, sustained discrepancy on the other one. And in fact, these last years here say that, uh, that the actual base growth rates were lower than what the rule is calling for. In other words, the rule was calling for policy to be easier, slightly easier than, than it was, whereas the other rule was saying it should have been tremendously tighter. Okay, so now I, I want, to, want to show you that, uh, the, that, that this kind of rule does not necessarily imply all of the kind of choppiness that we're seeing right here. Suppose, suppose we do just a little bit of smoothing uh, by making the rule pertain to uh, the average of, the, of nominal GDP growth over the previous four quarters, just in the way as the Taylor rule refers to the average inflation rate over the previous four quarters. And you see that the uh, kind of um, settings that are being called for by this rule are very, are, very, uh, are very well behaved. Now there's one, there's one thing that I have to note about uh, a, a data adjustment that I have done in this study, and it's that I've taken out that point there and that point there. What are these? These are the, this, this, ref, this huge growth rate there one quarter, uh, uh, tw you know, 23% per annum growth rate of the monetary base in one quarter. Well, that was the last quarter of 1999 when the Fed was putting a lot of, a lot of currency in, into banks because of the fear that there might be some sort of panic at the end of the millennium. And, uh, and then they just, you know, and that didn't transpire and they took all of that out uh, in the next two quarters. And, and, you know, I did a little statistical estimation of what the base would have been like if, 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 if that event had not occurred, which is, I'm sure, what the Fed would have done if it were trying to use, if it were interested in using the base for this kind of measure. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with making that one adjustment. We're left with one interesting spike right there. Well, that's 9-11. That's the uh, aftermath of 9-11, the, uh, the amount of, of currency that was quickly injected and base money and reserves. Okay, so uh, w w one more, a couple more comments. Now, in, in recent articles, The uh, Economist, uh, which is a fine magazine that I tend to like a lot of their positions. And they, they have been arguing that more attention should be paid to the behavior of monetary aggregates, of which the base is the, is the smallest monetary aggregate. Now, we strongly agree with that general position, and we also agree with their criticism that uh, during the Greenspan years, more should have been done to institution, institutionalize monetary policymaking by adopting procedures more like those of the leading inflation-targeting central banks. Uh, but The Economist has sort of taken the Fed to task for halting the uh, publication of the series on the aggregate M3, and I personally, I'm not speaking for everyone on the committee, but I personally don't see that as an alarming 
move because the M3 measure is so broad that I, I can't think of it as money. It d doesn't match any of the kind of uh, conceptual definitions of money that one would put forth having to do with uh, medium of exchange or, or, or outside money that's controllable by the Fed. So I don't, I don't see that as a great, uh, great loss. If one wants a very broad measure, uh, some measure of the rate of growth of nominal spending seems to me to be the right way to think about what you're trying to get out of that type of measure. Uh, a more important thing, quibble that I would have and I think most of my colleagues would have with The Economist is its attraction to the notion that central banks should try to control asset price movements even when they are not uh, affecting inflation rates or other macroeconomic variables that the central banks are concerned with. I, I, I do not believe that uh, special measures to control asset price movements is a good idea and would quarrel with the economist on that matter. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Uh, I'd, I'd like just to sort of make a, a related point that uh, that Greg made, and, and it's very much related to the comments that Ben was just making, and that is that the, the, the financial markets and the media are constantly seeming to try to elicit from Fed officials in their statements comments about what the future path of the federal funds rates is going to be. The recent flap with, with, uh, with Chairman Bernanke in the press about whether they were going to pause this time or next time and how long the pause might be. Uh, we think that's that's not the right way to think about monetary policy, and it's and it basically is created by the Fed trying to send guidance to the markets about what their options might be or what their path might be, uh, sends confusing signals to the marketplace. Uh, the notion of policy rules or guidelines um, and a clear target, as Greg was pointing out, obviate the need for all this guidance and signal sending because it becomes fairly clear what the objective of the Fed ought to be, and it provides a set of contingency policies that says if the path of inflation or if the path of the economy follows this path, here are the types of actions we will contemplate. It doesn't tell you what the future path of interest rates are going to be, but it does give you a, a guideline for understanding how the Fed will respond as new information comes along. And that gets around this issue of the Fed having to pre-commit in some way what the path of interest rates or the funds rate they might follow because, as Chairman Bernanke has said, what decision they make sometime at a subsequent meeting will undoubtedly be dependent upon what information and news has come to pass prior to that meeting. And so there's no point in telling someone or even trying to predict what that decision would be without that information. Nonetheless, rules and guidelines provide guidance as to sort of how will the Fed choose to make a decision, <laughs> what information would be relevant, and then you have basically given a, almost a complete contingent description of how policy might be conducted in the future. And that would clarify tremendously, clarify tremendously or simplify the Fed's so-called communication problem uh, Quite, quite readily. And we think that could be an important step of getting out of some of this muddled confusion, misinterpretation and so forth that, uh, that often gets bannered about between Fed officials and, and the marketplace and the media sometimes. Okay, moving away from, uh, from inflation and, and, and con the, con the strict conduct of monetary policy, we also believe that um, the Fed undertakes a lot or a wide range of activities that have perhaps very little to do with the conduct of monetary policy. And Anna Schwartz is going to talk to us a little bit about that and sort of the prospects of, the, of, the, of Chairman Bernanke and the Fed reviewing some of those activities that may be less, uh, may be distracting to the conduct of good monetary policy. The Fed engages in activities that are unrelated to its main responsibility, monetary policy. We believe that 
as Chairman Bernanke begins his term in office, it would be desirable for him to examine each of these non-monetary policy activities that the Fed has assumed over the years and to question their relevance to what the Fed should be dedicated to the provision of long-term price stability. Some of these activities were assigned to the Fed by Congress in legislation. An example is margin requirements on loans for the purchase of equities that was assigned to the Fed by the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. The chairman should ask himself, what were the circumstances under which this responsibility was initially assigned to the Fed? And have those circumstances changed over time? It is noteworthy that during the equity boom in the 1990s, the Fed was often urged to raise margin requirements on loans for security purchases and did not act on this advice. Chairman Bernanke should study what the evidence shows about the necessity or the appropriateness of control of credit in the equity market should be um, adopted by the Fed. Other um, uh, responsibilities of a non-monetary character were willingly assumed by the Fed in the past. For example, the Fed is the regulator and supervisor of um, bank holding companies, member banks, and also the branches and agencies of foreign banks located in the United States. Well, that uh, responsibility was adopted at a time when the uh, general impression was that banks were inherently unstable and the evidence that was cited in favor of this proposition was that banks had porf portfolios that were not um, diversified. But if you ask why was this the case historically that banks in the United States held undiversified portfolios, it was the result of regulation itself that prohibited branch banking. Once that prohibition was removed, the banks were able to diversify their portfolios and to be as stable as just any kind of firm that operates in this country. So again, this is a subject that Chairman Bernanke should investigate and decide for himself, is this an appropriate responsibility of the Fed. In addition, the Fed has been assigned the responsibility for supervision of consumer finance by the Truth in Lending Act of 1961. Now, there is clearly a conflict of interest between supervision of consumer finance and facilitating consumer finance and the Fed's monetary responsibility.
for stable prices. At times, monetary policy requires restriction of lending. And needless to say, consumer of finance is affected by such monetary policy decisions. So again, is the Fed the most appropriate agency to be supervising consumer finance, or should it be uh, turned over to some other uh, federal agency like the Federal Trade Commission or the controller of the currency? Then there are other activities that the Fed engages in, and again, you can ask questions about them. The Fed manages um, um, the payment system, and um, one responsibility for which it may en uh, encounter losses is Fed wire. But the evidence now is that it isn't necessary for the Fed to assume such losses in Canada and in the, the um, uh, Clearinghouse Association have shown that they can manage payment system finality without losses. So again, it's something for Chairman Bernanke to think about. Is this a proper use of Fed resources? Finally, we mention exchange market intervention by the Fed, something it willingly adopted in 1962 at the urging of the Treasury, which needed higher, more uh, expansive resources to engage in the purchase and sale of foreign currencies in connection with the Bretton Woods system. Now, um, years have passed since the uh, Bretton Woods system disappeared. We know that in recent years, central banks worldwide except for those in Asia, have not shown much enthusiasm for engaging in exchange market intervention. This is something that uh, Chairman Bernanke should reconsider and decide whether under his chairmanship, chairmanship this is another activity of the Federal Reserve that he either wants to preserve or wants to eliminate. He was not asked questions about uh, non-monetary policy activities at his confirmation hearings, and there is no written record about what he believes about any of these activities. We recommend that at the beginning of his tenure as chairman, it is opportune for him to examine each of these activities, including any others that the, our policy statement does not refer to. Thank you, Anna. We've now got some time for questions of, uh, that you may have about anything that we've said or maybe we haven't covered. We're welcome to open it up to questions. So, yes. I think they've got a mic. They'll have a mic coming around for them. Uh, yes, I was a European economic analyst for 31 years at CIA, and I was always looked at Germany's Bundesbank as a kind of model of how a central bank should operate was pleased to see the entire EU essentially adopt the Bundesbank model when it moved to a single currency. 
I was just wondering if any of the panelists would uh, agree or disagree with that or have other thoughts on other central banks that were either very good or very bad, perhaps, in implementing monetary policy. Well, certainly the Bundesbank had an incredibly uh, good track record for many, many, many years, along, along with the Swiss National Bank, actually. Uh, were, uh, and interestingly enough, they were much more attuned to the monetary aggregates, as Ben was suggesting, than in fact than interest rate targeting is, is, is as has become the practice among modern central banks. But I'll leave the, I'll let somebody else comment about those other. I, I would just note that uh, a growing number of leading central banks around the world uh, have adopted a numeric inflation target, and a number of those also issue a periodic report on inflation where they provide their inflation forecast and a discussion about the inflation process. And doing so provides an anchor, uh, eliminates a lot of the transparency problems that our Fed has, um, and, and has shown uh, very good results. So um, whether or not that emanates from, from the Bundesbank, we, we uh, do favor those practices that would lead to better monetary policy making with an anchor um, and improved transparency. Uh, well, I would agree that the Bundesbank was uh, perhaps the most admirable, unless it was the Swiss National Bank, for a long period of time. And... Um, they did certainly talk about themselves as a uh, institution that tried to hit money growth targets. And if you looked at the if you looked at the record carefully, I think that it shows that they were actually more of a nominal GDP or a nominal spending growth targeting, or maybe even an inflation targeting institution in the sense that when their actions that would would either have to choose between hitting their money growth targets or um, hitting their desires for inflation, when, when, they, when there was some contradiction between the two, they would go for the inflation rate over the actual money growth rate. So they they were not they were not a model of clarity in their descriptions about what they were actually doing. They were not terribly transparent. But their performance was very good and it was because they kept their eye on their central responsibility, which was to keep inflation darn low. Examining the way that the U.S. monetary system has operated over the course of the last 30 years, it seems pretty clear, and I would imagine that most of the people on the panel recognize that the floating exchange rate dollar-based system is right now collapsing. And this is evidenced by uh, the flight by major financial interests and major banks around the world from the, the riskier uh, speculative markets like real estate right now into, and now they're moving the investment into, uh, commodities and other raw materials. And you've got these financial interests trying to outbid each other, and they're creating massive inflation. And if you actually look at the growth rate on the inflation of these commodities, it's the same growth rate that one saw, although the values are lower, uh, in 1923 Germany with the hyperinflation. Uh, and it seems like the discussion that's being had by this panel and by a lot of people in Washington, D.C. that I've spoken with, it's a discussion of trying to work within the confines of this system. Uh, but it seems fairly clear, and I know you don't want to talk anybody into a collapse, but it seems pretty clear that this system, as it stands right now, is finished. So what I would ask the people on the panel, and specifically Ms. Schwartz and Mr. Levy, what do you propose uh, for replacing this failing monetary system. You've been challenged, Mickey. <laughs> I'll take a crack at that. I mean, as far as I can tell, the flexible exchange rate uh, uh, policy is working just fine. And yes, commodity prices um, have gone up. Uh, 
um, but that's a change in relative prices. And if you look historically, um, uh, commodity prices are not particularly reliable indicators of future inflation. So, yes, um, private portfolio managers and central banks have been moving money around, but the foreign exchange market has been uh, very orderly um, and liquid, and that's a hallmark of it working, not collapsing. And so I continue to favor uh, flexible exchange rates. I fully recognize that with um, s stronger growth globally, and particularly robust growth in um, places like uh, China that tends to be a very inefficient consumer of energy, uh, perhaps that's one reason that's driven up commodity prices in relative terms. It's a relative price change. But that need not generate higher inflation, and I don't think it has any – I don't think you can jump to the conclusion that the um, monetary system is collapsing. You have to remember that every central bank, that any central bank can have only one nominal objective. It's, and so if, we're, if a central bank is going to conduct monetary policy so as to keep some nominal exchange rate fixed, it cannot be conducting monetary policy so as to uh, manage inflation and keep inflation low. Those are two completely alternative uh, prescriptions for the conduct of monetary policy. Uh, I think that uh, taking care of domestic uh, prices of domestic goods is much more important for most economies uh, than for than worrying about the local currency price of foreign exchange. It might not be true for Singapore, but uh, for the United States it is. Uh, thinking also back to all of the financial crises of uh, the uh, 90s, 95, 97, 98, all of those financial crises occurred in countries that were basically trying to peg their nominal exchange rates. There were none that occurred for countries that were floating. I'm not talking about the official IMF classifications. I'm talking about what they were actually doing. I just I find this to be a most astonishing <laughs> statement of uh, view of what we are seeing in the world. I, would, I guess with, I would add I would add one one more observation, which is that that uh, um, we know very well that hyperinflations are largely almost entirely products of mismanaged policy, monetary policy, and in some cases fiscal policy. But at the end of the day, all hyperinflations were accompanied by or caused by massive, massive, massive increases in money creation. Uh, and and uh, they were all accompanied by that. And so to, th that is not what we're witnessing today. So, Phil? Thank you for your, com for your question, which uh, is something that we need to keep thinking about these things constantly. What, what targets uh, central banks should Puzzle one caused a substantial change in bank portfolios. Uh, limiting any growth in commercial and industrial loans for five years from 89 to 94. What do you expect to be the consequence of Basel II? I guess I don't have a, I mean, obviously its final form has not been decided yet. It's still out for, out for discussion. That's an issue. I don't have a strong opinion about that. I don't know whether anybody else on the panel um, uh, I was much more familiar with uh, the Basel one than Basel II. Uh, I know right now that consumer loan growth and uh, industrial loan growth is still uh, very robust. Uh, I'm guessing that uh, you know I I'm guessing this will have uh, have have a much smaller disturbance than than the first round. But it depends, I suppose, a little bit as to where we are, uh, kind of in the cycle. Uh, if this thing starts to hit when the time when banks are are struggling making loans, that it might have a bigger bite. But I think at this point, I don't see it having. Uh, a, a major impact, unlike the first Basel one. On the other hand, uh, you know, the adoption of Basel one is actually why we're probably in the better position that we are. Banks are better capitalized. Uh, countries that have not adopted Basel one or have, have kind of wiggled around Basel one uh, have found themselves in a weaker position. I think the reason why uh, we have been able to intermediate as many. Uh, 
issues as we have in America is because of uh, you know the higher capital standards that our banks have. Uh, but there are still risks out there, and uh, hopefully Basel II will address those without uh, any kind of harmful effects. I, I would add one other observation, which I'm, I'm aware of, and that is is that as the United States begins to apply Basel II, that the way my understanding of the way that we will do that is that it will not apply to all banks, that the United States, in fact, has the option to opt out of certain provisions and certain applications of that. And indeed, my understanding is, and I'm, I'm not the expert, but my understanding from, from what little I've, what I've read about it is that uh, many small, medium to small size, smaller size banks will not have to comply with Basel II. And it's primarily going to be reflecting in very large money center banks and, and, and the bigger banks. So depending on, if you think about this as a portfolio problem from your question, whether or not what's the mix of loans and activities that big banks versus little banks do, you, it, that option to opt out may have mitigating effects in terms of shocks to the system um, uh, of, of how it gets implemented. That's just, just an observation. This question? Yes. I, my question is, uh, I just wondered whether um, Bernanke's comments last, last week at the White House Correspondents' Dinner um, reflected a lack of understanding of markets and whether he, you think he'll now have to tighten by more than he would have ideally wished at the June meeting. I don't, I don't think it had any reflection at all on his understanding of markets. He has a, a, a very deep understanding of markets, how they behave, and he follows them very, very carefully. And uh, I don't think the, that episode uh, suggests that the Fed will have to change policy from what it would otherwise. I, I just don't, don't see that. I think, um, having said that, it is another episode that suggests that uh, transparency is harder in practice than it is in concept, and our shadow group does make recommendations uh, moving to an inflation target and publishing an inflation report every month, and that would uh, make simplify and make much clearer what the Fed's trying to achieve and, and take away a lot of the uh, probability of miscommunication and misunderstanding. I guess I would also add that his comments at the, the dinner, the White House dinner, were not inconsistent with, the, with what he He just repeated what he said in his testimony. It was the media that actually lifted comments out of his testimony, I, I think in part out of context, to create a story. And uh, in some ways it wasn't a change in his story. <laughs> it was just a change in way, the way what he originally said got reported. So I, don't, I, 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 th I think this is, uh, again, an example of confusion where sometimes the media is trying to make more out of statements than are actually there, and this effort of to clarify by being more transparent can help remove some of that volatility and uncertainty that people are trying to carry on. I mean, one of the things that uh, Mervyn King uh, always advocates is that when monetary policy is best, it's when it's most boring. Uh, that doesn't make it... Uh, you know, uh, page one stuff or above the fold stuff. But uh, I think ultimately what we're trying to do is stay out of the newspaper uh, a a for monetary policy, and that's really uh, our, our firm recommendation. Uh, it should be put to a more analytical base uh, where people can judge. Uh, you know, the Fed makes promises and, and predictions about where the economy's going. Uh, if they had an inflation report, one might be actually able to measure how good their uh, predictive ability is and if, in fact, uh, they need to rethink uh, the way mechanisms work in the economy. I think that's why we're looking for a bit more formalization and a little bit more, I don't know if I, don't know if I can turn the word boring into... Uh, a noun, but yeah, to, to, to create a more boring atmosphere for monetary policy. There's a question in the back. Uh, columnist. Uh, for the last two years, the Fed's been raising interest rates quarter percent a meeting or two percent per annum, but inflation's been going up very nearly as fast as this if you look at the full inflation figure. So, in fact, with inflation now around four, even a five percent Fed funds rate is still only a real interest rate of one. 
Uh, my question is, isn't there a danger that, particularly if they pause for a bit to think about it, that they'll never actually catch up and that therefore they're going to have to do a large jump to 8% Fed funds or something like that, which would presumably bring the system crashing down on their head? Uh, well, why don't you uh, let me uh, take this? Actually, I just try to discuss a little bit about this in my statement uh, that, that you have in your uh, package. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, one of the principles of good monetary policy is that you over-respond to inflation rather than meet movements in inflation. Uh, this is probably one of the best lessons learned from the Taylor Rule approach to monetary policy. You have to get ahead of inflation to get ahead of real interest rate movements to, to move, uh, you know, the real interest rate up when, in fact, you believe uh, there's inflationary consequences uh, out there. It is one of the issues that I think was going to push the Fed to a, uh, a higher uh, ultimate level with uh, short-term nominal interest rates. I think we're, uh, to, to believe that the Fed is going to pause here, I think, is uh, unlikely. I think the Fed is going to have to continue to stay ahead of this. Now, that also gets the question of how you exactly measure inflation. Now, the Fed has historically been rather selective about how it picks inflation rate. It has moved from the CPI to the PCE now to the PCE core, uh, it has almost always chosen a lower inflation rate every time it has switched. Uh, this should create concerns. This is after commissions to have bring down uh, the inflation rate. Other measures that are less selective, things like the Cleveland Fed's median CPI index is, you know, 2.7%. Other measures of inflation, uh, GDP deflator is, uh, is, is well over 3%. That's supposed to be a, a, a downwardly biased measure of inflation. So uh, the Fed is concentrating on a low measure of inflation. Obviously, the gentleman back there pointed out headline inflation is much higher. Uh, the Fed's being a little bit selective here. I think uh, it should uh, formalize uh, its understanding of inflation, put it on paper, uh, and adopt a procedure, uh, a contingent procedure, to get there. And I think that contingent procedure is to continue uh, to remain on a tightening schedule, uh, perhaps uh, you know aggressively so. Uh, the credibility issues here are clear. Uh, getting rid of inflation now is not going to cost them very much. It'll become much more expensive if they wait. It's clear there's a consensus on the panel that it's going to take more than just one more increase in the federal funds rate uh, for the Fed to do its job. No, there's not. Okay. It's at <laughs> steps in the statement. Uh, I, I guess I want to get a sense of the panel, uh, you know, of the various views on the panel on what it will take uh, or what it, at this point, looks like it will take for the Fed to do its job. My disagreement was a kind of a, an academic procedural one. <laughs> Which is that we don't we don't have any we don't take a position on on what changes are going to be needed in the future. What we take the position on is the way in which they should look at the conditions in the future, and we think that they need to look at conditions. Nobody, no private firm, you know, decides exactly what it's going to do in terms of quantities. Far in the future, a financial market firm would not decide how many billions of dollars worth of yen they're going to they're going to purchase four months in the future without having making that entirely contingent on what the conditions are going to be then. And no central bank is ever going to decide now what it's going to do in the future. What it can decide now is how it's going to react in the future to the current conditions. And that's what something that we are trying to promote is that is that uh, not only what well, we believe the Fed does think about things in that way. We believe that the Fed made a mistake in uh, late 2003 when it tried to give guidance about the future, and that they made a mistake by describing their likelihood of what they were going to do in the future rather than describing how they were going to respond to conditions in the future. And this may sound like a very nitpicking thing, but uh, to, to, to us it's an extremely important distinction. Decision rules is what the Fed should be conveying uh, to the public rather than promises about where the federal funds rate is going to be in the future. 
So I was nitpicking with your with your argument, <laughs> but uh, gave me a chance to uh, repeat myself. <laughs> okay, I, I I will agree philosophically with what Ben said. <laughs> But I'm in this position where I've, I'm often asked, you know, what will the Fed do? Um, and here I'll, I'll take a little more silver lining. I'm very pleased that by the end of this week the funds rate will be 5%, which is a significant increase um, from what it has been. I do note that the monetary aggregates, both the narrow aggregate, the monetary base, and the broader aggregates are growing modestly uh, consistent with nominal spending growth slowing. Um, so I'm of the belief that, um, and I'm also very, very impressed with the sustained uh, growth in, in productivity data and the fact that uh, wages, as measured by the ECI, are growing only modestly, suggesting that there may be some international influence. So I add things up and say um, the Fed needs to hike rates further but I don't think it's I don't think it's much beyond this meeting I would say if, if, you know once again I agree with Ben that we sh you know this committee is not charged with coming up with a funds rate forecast and we don't think the Fed should but I think you know five and a quarter um, what would make the Fed move higher is any increase in inflation from here does threaten the Fed's inflation-fighting credibility, and it needs to maintain that credibility, um, which in and of itself is very important for the future inflation process. So I don't think they have much more rate hikes uh, to go beyond here to be consistent with their long-run objective of keeping inflation low. That is, I expect nominal – if energy prices stabilize, I expect nominal spending growth to moderate. Uh, toward five and a half, which would make any increase in core inflation beyond that uh, transitory. Take one more question, Steve. Uh, Steve Anton, Institute for Research on the Economics of Taxation. Uh, Mickey, following up on, on your remarks there, uh, people have looked at the commodity prices, but they're probably relative price changes. They've looked at exchange rates, but you have different policies among the banks. Uh, so we get back to the monetary rules. Uh, but there are uh, some other things that, that might affect what the appropriate policy change would be. An, an unexpected prolonged rise in productivity, perhaps related to a technological change. Um, a major tax change such as in the early 80s, which may have moderated wage demands and the unexpected collapse of the inflation rate in the early 80s that went faster than predicted. Uh, a sudden change in, in technology or the taxation of capital that raises real returns in the uh, private market that is not due to Fed policy change. They need to be aware of these things. What do you need to look at in, in making these rules conditional uh, on what's going on in the world? Uh, Steve, I mean, basically what I, what I consider appropriate is to consider um, the impact of, like, tax policy changes, technological innovation, and come up with an assessment of what that means for sustainable gains in productivity and, therefore, you know, potential growth. Um, the concern I have even then is... Taking everything that's happened, it's hard to conceive that it's increased potential growth that high. So even if you're optimistic on sustainable gains in productivity, one might think uh, uh, an estimate of potential growth is, say, three and three quarters. Even with that, 6.7% sustainable nominal spending growth is too rapid and needs, needs to be slowed down. I, uh, you know, one interpretation I used to think about monetary policy is one that Alan Blinder brought, which is uh, the view that oftentimes the Fed is opportunistic, that the Fed thinks about inf trying to keep inflation in a zone and that uh, it's willing to use opportunistic mechanisms to stay in that zone. I think the Fed is now 
really hoping for some kind of supply, positive supply consideration, uh, either that being a lowering in oil prices or some other uh, technological uh, impact to bring the inflation rate down. I think they're way at the edge of their zone, and they're, they know that headline rates are above their zone, and they're hoping that a positive shock kind of brings inflation down uh, one way or the other. Uh, my, my personal view is that uh, the Fed should not really be in the position of looking to be lucky uh, to keep their inflation credibility. Uh, the Fed should buy a little bit of insurance now. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, you know, there's a, there's a machismo streak in some monetary economists about how we need to break inflation and, you know, kill it, things like that. I try to be humane. I couldn't think of a better word than kill. Uh, but the fact is the Fed needs to stay ahead of these things and shouldn't just anticipate luck uh, to get it uh, to where it needs to be with, uh, with uh, you know, an inflation target uh, that it, it, it thinks is warranted. Okay, uh, I think we'll stop there. We, I want to thank all of you for coming. For those that are interested, the committee will be upstairs. There's a light lunch with sandwiches being served. You're welcome to stick around and, and chat with us. I also note that uh, all the papers that are in your handout, the charts and the papers, will be available on the Shadows website. That's www.somc.rochester.edu. Those will be posted uh, when I get back to Rochester tomorrow morning. <laughs> so sometime after tomorrow morning, you, you can be able to go to the website and get all these things downloaded, those of you who are interested. Thank you again for coming, and please join us for some lunch. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for being here.